Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin. Sallallahu aleyhi ve sellem ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Uh, first and foremost, I put the link there in the chat box, but just uh, by way of demonstration, in case anyone can't find it, the concept of education in Islam, Atas, PDF, and you will find it, first one. Okay, so it should be pretty easy to find. I'm going to bring up the my PDF version here. And then we'll go from there. So, uh, as a disclaimer, so I I sat down. I sat down and I was trying to kind of um, how should I say? I was trying to like take notes and summarize and figure out, you know, how can I really make this easier for us to go through and uh, so that we don't have to read it word by word although as many of you know I'm kind of a proponent of the reading it word by word method but nonetheless uh, I thought I would try to facilitate things a little bit so I sat down I was taking my notes diligently and uh, you know got like my couple pages done with my notes some like charts trying to help and stuff and then <laughs> I got to the point where I was like you know we really just need to read this thing word by word <laughs> because <laughs> it's not how do I say like some di there's different kinds of readings right like some of them are pretty straightforward you can kind of read it you get it and so it's easier to kind of um, summarize and pick pieces out and so on but some of them are um, kind of like more deeply philosophical and um, if it's more deeply philosophical then kind of like it's written in a way where each sentence builds on the one before it so if you cut pieces out that has consequences and then on top of it you just kind of miss things however it's also one of those readings where when I sat down and I took notes with it it helped me a lot so I, like we'll go through this and inshallah we'll take our time with it <coughs> as is necessary but I would encourage like in the in-between if people have the chance um, during the week to kind of like go back and read it and think about it sit with it a little bit if you have the opportunity to do so I think that that would be beneficial uh, not because of don't go back and listen to the video go back and read the paper because it's it's what he's saying that's uh, that's really really important and foundational um, so Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Let's just begin. With that, let's begin. The concept of education in Islam, Sayyid Muhammad Naqib al Atas. Sayyid Naqib al Atas is, without exaggeration, one of the central kind of like philosophers and thinkers of Islam in the modern world. 
So this whole kind of like people may have heard of this Islamization of Knowledge project that had different branches that stems from him in Southeast Asia in Malaysia in particular but of course in Indonesia and other places as well um, and <coughs> spread to the US under the under the work of Triple IT International uh, what is it Institute uh, International Institute of Islamic Thought I think the three I's and a T <laughs> they've published a lot of good stuff and um, you know Dr. Taha Jabir Allah Yirhamu and the others that worked with them but Sayyid Naqim Al-Atas is like kind of like the the big shot in a sense of the metaphysical and ph philosophical kind of like thinking through how do we build a framework for ourselves that's based on our tradition and comes from our tradition and then we use that as a means by which we approach the various types of knowledge that exist around us now critiques of the Islamization of knowledge project aside he is a um, he is without a doubt uh, an extremely profound and important thinker in our period and I believe that you will notice that when we read this inshallah so bismillahirrahmanirrahim the concept of education in Islam قال المؤلف حفظه الله تعالى ونفعه الله وياه بعلومه في دارين آمين. Allah preserve him and give him increase. He's still with us, and he's quite aged, mashallah, but he's still with us. Uh, I want to, before we begin, point out if you notice here that this copyright is for 1980, and this was an address that he delivered in 1977. And the reason why I think that is important is because oftentimes you'll hear these kind of like conversations in the Muslim community that are sort of like, you know, nobody thinks about these things. How come nobody ever talked about this? These kind of conversations. And, um, you know, just because we haven't heard it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And just because we're not familiar with it doesn't mean that um, it hasn't been there. Like, this is 1977. That's almost half a century ago now. Like, subhanAllah, when you think about it, that's, that's a, a good 43 years ago now. You know, that's a long time. And it seems like for someone who's born in the 80s, which makes that kind of like my reference point, it just keeps getting further and further back, right? <laughs> like, in my mind, the 80s, the 90s are close. But in the reality, all these, these times are, a lot has passed. So, anyways, we'll go on. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Concept of education in Islam. The meaning of education and of what it involves is of utmost importance in the formulation of a system of education and its implementation. So the first thing that comes up here is, we cannot proceed in general without addressing the issue of meaning no matter what we're doing we cannot proceed without addressing the issue of meaning we cannot proceed without addressing the issue of intention right because to ask the question of meaning is also to ask the question of intention right like what are we doing this for and what is it attached to and what does that mean what, do, what does that do for us 
So this is the first issue. Nothing can be taken just because. And um, of course, like we engage with the world, we deal with the world, but we should think. We should we should question. We should think. You know, it's like one of the big things you often hear is this whole thing about technology. That technology is a tool. You know, don't be mad at the phone. Don't be mad at the internet. Don't do this. Don't do that. This platform, that platform. Because these are just tools and you can use tools however you want. It's true, you can use tools however you want, but there are philosophical and cultural and societal implications to the introduction of particular types of tools. So there are philosophical questions that come in relation to these things. It's not as simple as just, oh, you know, use it for good or use it for bad. It's, it's not a shovel. Like, and even a shovel is going to have consequences. A wheel is going to have consequences. And one of the not so long and yet still really good writings on that, uh, I don't know if I have it at arm's length here or not, it might be at home, is uh, Technopoly by Neil Postman. Technopoly by Neil Postman. And kind of like this development of the way that we engage technology. Do we engage it as a tool, or we, or do we at some point become a tool of that technology in some ways? Um, another work that I haven't personally read, but I've heard recommended a lot, is called The Technological Society by Jacques Ellul, who is a French philosopher, if I'm not mistaken. That's here somewhere too, but I don't know where it is now, um, to show it to you. That one's fatter, and it's a little, it's a lot more involved of a reading, but... In any case, the point is, we have to ask the question of meaning. Supposing I am asked, what is education? And I answer, education is a process of instilling something into human beings. Okay, so this is a possible answer. Education is a process of instilling something into human beings. In this answer, a process of instilling refers to the method and system by which what is called education is gradually imparted. Something refers to the content of what is instilled, and human beings refer to the recipient of both the process and the content. So what part of what he's doing here is, and, and it shows you which framework he's functioning from, is this is generally the way that our scholars would do things. If we're going to say, what is something, and then we give some sort of definition of it, when we give some sort of definition of it, we don't just leave the words that are used in the definition to be left by themselves. We have to actually even define the words that are used in the definition to make sure that we're all on the same page about this whole thing. And that's what, like, we'll see this tomorrow, actually, when we get into um, the introduction to Islamic law and ethics. I'm not going to do what some of the shiuch do, which they spend like an hour and a half just on the definition of fiqh. You know, what is fiqh? It's... It's you know this this type of knowledge that's derived. And it's like it's you're gonna we're not gonna spend that long on it, but you'll see that each word has to be understood in and of itself in order to move forward. So he's defining the parts of this. Now the answer given above already encompasses the three fundamental elements that constitute education. So three fundamental elements that constitute education: the process, the content, and the recipient. The process, the content, and the recipient. But it is not yet a definition because those elements are deliberately left vague. So we haven't actually defined them yet, so it hasn't come to being a full definition. 
Furthermore, the way of formulating the sentence meant to be developed into a definition as given above gives the impression that what is emphasized is the process. So depending on how you structure the words in the sentence, it's going to put the emphasis in a particular place, right? So if he puts this as education is a process of instilling something into human beings, the emphasis in that statement then becomes about the process. Emphasis becomes about the process, right? Um, <coughs> whereas maybe we don't want it to be formulated uh, in that way. And, you know, maybe maybe we want we want to formulate it in a different way. Um, so here's a possible different way. Supposing I reformulate the answer, education is something progressively instilled into man. Now here we still encompass the three fundamental elements inherent in education, but the order of precedence as to the important element that constitutes education is now the content and not the process. So now it's something that's progressively instilled into man. Not it's, it's about that something. So let us consider this last formulation and proceed in analyzing the inherent concepts. Okay, so now he's going to work from this point. To give you a, um, what are those called? Spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert in this context, inshallah, will help. But this is a spoiler alert. Education is something progressively instilled into man. This is the initial starting point he's going to start from. But as he works through each piece of that, this is going to turn into a paragraph, basically. And that paragraph then is going to be transposed onto the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he said, Which is a disputed hadith in terms of authenticity, but it's not disputed in terms of like all of the scholars will quote this hadith as, a, as something that is important to our worldview. And that can be translated as, my Lord educated me, and in doing so, He gave me an excellent education. But involved is the word adab, which we'll come to. Part of this also that you're going to see as we go through this is that <coughs> um, as I've kind of mentioned before, one of the things that is extremely important to Islamic studies is the Arabic language. And sometimes we can figure out like how native or foreign a concept is to our tradition by trying to figure out how would we even translate this to classical Arabic or how would this be understood in classical Arabic if it's a modern Arabic term um, uh, very interesting in this regard and we're not going to go off on this topic right now but is the question of the word Islami or Islamiyun what does that mean? And how was it used in the early, early period of Islam? And how is it used today? And it's very interesting. But uh, we'll see in this paper as he goes through that a lot of the terms are Arabic terms. And he's working with them in English. And he's kind of translating them and trying to figure out how we work with them. And so doing, at the end, he'll, he'll conclude and he'll say, in this discourse, basically, we dealt with these terms. This one and 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 all of these are essential to a conceptualization, conceptualization of how we look at learning in Islam. <coughs> okay, so education is something progressively instilled into man. Man, obviously, uh, he doesn't even address that here because 40 years ago it was 
uh, different landscape than it is today, but man includes woman, just like mankind includes womankind, it's humankind. And maybe the wording is, uh, people tend towards a different usage now. There may be philosophical consequences to that. We don't need to go into that right now. But uh, when he says man, he means human beings. Okay. But he's using it for, uh, he's not actually using it as rajul, I don't think, as a translation of rajul. I think he's using it as a translation of insan. Because later on he's going to say that the man is hayawanun natiq. And usually that's how you hear it in Arabic is that al-insan hayawanun natiq. Al-insan hayawanun natiq. Right? So, hmm. <coughs> So, Batul, it's going to come. Because every single piece of this is going to be defined. So, what he means by education, what he means by something will be defined. And all of those possible issues will be kind of um, uh, sifted out, so to speak. Yeah, for the people who are coming late, uh, I shouldn't say it that way. For the people who are joining, perhaps after the beginning of the class... Just search for the concept of education in Islam and you'll find it. Or the link is there sent by Chaplain Sundus. Um, I think when you come after a message has been sent, you don't see the ones that came before. So uh, some people are missing the, missing the link. Okay. Now here we still encompass the three fundamental elements. We said that. And it focuses on content. And let's move forward. I shall begin with man. Since the definition of man is already generally well known, and that is that he is a rational animal. Hayawanun natiq. It's the translation of Hayawanun natiq. By the way, even though a lot of this stuff is in Arabic, there is actually a significant overlap in terms and usages because of the proximity of Islamic civilization to Western civilization. Um, and, a, and an important read in that regard um, would be this one probably can't see it because it's small in the top but the case for islamo Jude uh islamo christian civilization and the light is hitting it funny the case for islamo christian civilization uh by richard bullet professor at columbia case for islamo christian civilization so like one of the things he says in there is basically that like if you're gonna if you're gonna argue for the idea of is of a Judeo-Christian civilization, you should really actually argue for the conceptualization of an Islamo-Christian civilization because the Muslims and the Christians were so close for so much of the history and there's so much overlap and usage of terms and ideas that came from the ancient Greeks and so on and so forth. Um, yes, Anthony, this is going to come too. <laughs> this is going to come too. So, <coughs> uh, the Muslims will call the human being Hayawanun Natiq, a rational animal, from very early. I, don't, I can't tell you exactly when, but from very early. Like, for sure, before the Enlightenment. Because, you know, 400 years ago for us is like nothing. Uh, these are things that we're having. These are, you could find this in all, like, middle period text. You'll for sure find this, which is all six, 700 years ago. Uh, but you'll, it'll, it's going to come right now in a second. So he is a rational animal. Since rationality defines man, we must at least have some idea as to what rational means. And we all agree that it refers to reason. 
However, in Western intellectual history, the concept of ratio or ratio has undergone, mu undergone much controversy and has become, at least from the Muslim point of view, problematic. For it has gradually become separated from the intellect or intellectus in the process of secularization of ideas that coursed through the history of Western thought since the period of the ancient Greeks and Romans. So basically this concept has changed over the course of Western thought. The idea of what does it mean to have reason, whereas in, you know, in the ancient, ancient Western thought you'll have this idea that reason and intellect are linked to each other. And this is actually very much closer to the uh, Islamic understanding of the idea of aql, which he's going to say right now. <coughs> Muslim thinkers did not conceive of what is understood as ratio as something separate from what is understood as intellectus. They conceived the aql as an organic unity of both ratio and intellectus. Bearing this in mind, the Muslims defined man as hayawan natiq, where the term natiq signifies rational. Okay, so <coughs> actually, I'm not going to say anything because it's going to come. I'm going to delay it coming if I if I say anything. Just try to f follow the argument. Man is possessed of an inner faculty that formulates meaning. Formulates meaning. So man, by definition, has this faculty. That faculty formulates meaning. And that is what makes them natiq. That is what makes the human being dhu nutq. An entity that has this capacity of formulating meaning. And this formulation of meaning, which involves judgment and discrimination and clarification, and of course discrimination here, people, is not like hating on others. Right? <laughs> uh, you know, when you teach kids, you realize that like sometimes words get misunderstood in totally different ways. Discrimination, like being able to to mayiz, to distinguish one thing from another. Um, so involves formulation of meaning inherently involves judgment discrimination clarification and that's what constitutes this rationality that the human being is endowed with the terms natiq and nutq are derived from a root that conveys the basic meaning of speech in the sense of human speech so that they both signify a certain power and capacity in man to articulate words in meaningful pattern so again, part of this definition then of being rational is tied, especially in the Arabic usage, is tied to the idea of speech itself and the ability to articulate words in a meaningful way, uh, in a way that makes sense, to bring them together and so on. So the human being is, as it were, a language animal. And the articulation of linguistic symbols into meaningful patterns is no other than the onward, visible, and audible expression of the inner unseen reality which we call aql. So there's an inner reality, which is the aql. This nexus, so to speak, or this point, this capacity that exists between the mind and the heart in a sense or the brain and the heart or however these terms all become difficult to work with but it, it is the faculty by which we understand and it is not simply a physical thing but it is also a spiritual thing it's which will also come and that is that's inside of us and the speech that we use is the expression of that 
So it's the reflection of that into, it's to bring that into the scene in a sense. Uh, whereas wh before it's spoken, it exists in this unseen. Um, the term aql itself basically signifies a kind of binding or withholding. So that in this respect, so this is also one of the meanings of the word in Arabic, aql. To, it's the same word actually that's used in everyone's favorite hadith about tawakkul. That you tie the camel, aqilha. That you do aql of the camel, and then you rely on Allah, right? This this idea of tawakkul, as you tie your camel and you rely on Allah, the word that's used to talk about tying the camel in the Arabic expression of the hadith is the, the same root as aql. So there's a meaning there also of tying things together, holding them, binding them. Um, <coughs> as a side point. Sometimes uh, Like if things don't If things aren't fully coming together immediately It's kind of similar to the hikam Remember when we were first reading the hikam There's certain things like you hear them And you're like I'm not sure I really get that And over time when you sit with it You sit with it You sit with it And we go through more of the hikam More of the hikam By the end of it inshallah I hope some of that becomes more understood. Sometimes with these kind of works and papers, we have to kind of like sit with it a little bit, and uh, it it clarifies with time. Inshallah, if you're if you're struggling with it, just try to be patient. But I, you know, mashallah, most of the people here, I probably struggle with it more than you all will. So, <coughs> so that in this respect, aql signifies an innate property that binds and withholds objects of knowledge by means of words. Aql is synonymous with qalb in the same way as qalb, which is a spiritual organ of cognition called the heart, is synonymous with aql. And his reference here is Lisan al Arab, which is like the famous dictionary of the Arabic language. So he's saying that this aql actually and the qalb, they're synonymous. So what is the aql? It's usually what happens with the Muslims too now is because we're living in which, whose atmosphere of words and ideas and concepts are we living in usually for many of us no matter where we came from oftentimes we're still living in the framework of the west because of globalization because of domination because of all these other things so even now when the muslims use aql they don't usually think of qalb right like the average muslim that speaks arabic if you talk to them about their aql you tell them even if they're not arabic speaking if they're like farsi speaking i know farsi speaking people use aql i don't know if they use it if it's used in turkish or not um but like they'll say do you have have some aql this person has no aql for example and they'll use it but usually it's referring to the mind but we have to understand that in our framework this cognition is a cognition that happens um at several different levels um, and one of those levels is at the spiritual level okay um, <coughs> uh, let me just mute for a second so this is the heart the heart is the, the spiritual it's a spiritual organ of cognition okay the real nature of the aql is that it is a spiritual substance by which the rational soul and nafs al-natiqa recognizes and distinguishes truth from falsehood. So we have this nafs natiqa, the rational soul exists there. 
The aql is a spiritual substance, a capacity, a uh, means by which this nafs of ours, the reasons, begins to distinguish between truth and falsehood. Okay. It is clear from this, and many more references which we have not mentioned, that the reality underlying the definition of man is this spiritual substance, which is indicated by everyone when he says, I. So, uh, hmm. yeah, yeah. Interesting comments in the in the in the in the chat box. Yeah, um, I think all of those things are going to come together, inshallah. So what he's getting at is when he he says, so when we refer then to I, we're not just referring to like a physical sack of flesh. We're referring to something that goes beyond that, some sort of understanding, some sort of spiritual capacity, right? So he says, when we speak of education, therefore, it must pertain to this reality of man and not simply to his body and his animal aspect. So it must not only be like some superficial type of learning. A superficial type of learning we cannot consider to be true education, okay? which is what he's going to work on as we move forward. Um, in defining man as a rational animal, where we mean by rational the capacity for understanding speech and the power responsible for the formulation of meaning, which involves judgment, discrimination, distinction, and clarification, and which has to do with the articulation of words or expressions in meaningful pattern. The meaning of meaning in our present context, and based on the concept ma'na, is the recognition of the place of anything in a system. So now he's saying like, okay, the rational animal deals with the formulation of meaning. So what do we mean by meaning? Right? This is now the next the next step. What do we mean by meaning then? What is ma'na? What is ma'na? Is the recognition of the place of anything in a system. So similar to how in the beginning, as I said, he's starting with this kind of very broad definition of what is education and then throughout it it's going to get fleshed out what he's starting with here in terms of meaning is also very broad and it's going to get fleshed out so the meaning is the recognition of the place of anything in a system so this is where he's functioning from the recognition of the place of anything in a system Such recognition occurs when the relation a thing has with other things in the system becomes clarified and understood. The relation describes a certain order. So if we're going to talk about meaning, we have to talk about relationships. And, if we're, and, and those relationships existing in a system. And that if we're going to talk about relationships within a system, then that entails an understanding of the idea of order okay meaning conceived in the way I have formulated formulated above is a mental image in which a word or expression is applied to denote it so we have this again uh, this relationship between things in this system that has some sort of order and a word is or a word or expression is used to denote this thing and when that word or expression becomes an idea or a notion in the mind, in the aql, it is called mafhum. So this is some sort of thing that's understood. It's a concept, 
something that's understood this part we're not going to spend too much time on because um, how should I say some things are like I shouldn't say I just say we're probably not going to spend that much time on it but we'll see how it goes so you see this development we're talking about meaning now as an intelligible form that is formed in answer to the question what is it it is called essence mahia so now we're talking about this understanding of a concept or an idea something that's understood in answer to what is it it's called an essence because you can one of the things that happens i'm assuming this happens in philosophy i haven't really studied i just know how the muslims talk about these things for better or for worse you have to go to Sheikh Fuad for the for for the real kind of like analysis of these things. I messaged him actually when I was reading this part, and I was like, uh, you know, like, can you help me with this? Because <laughs> I don't want to get this wrong. Um, but there's some subtleties to it, um, and I'm not really the person probably to get into it. So, what is the difference between mahia and that? Um, because that they will also oftentimes translate as essence I'm assuming that's part of where this question is coming from so what is the uh, what is the difference between mahia and that my impression I don't know if um, Stad Honest has maybe some insights on this as well um, you know just by way of I'm not trying to put you on the spot honest but uh, you know mashallah the brother has uh, completed a degree in sharia from al-azhar so um, you know he may have some insight on these things um, as, as well as other courses of study and so on so my impression just kind of thinking out loud right now and again like this is this is the kind of thing that would be parsed a lot more in a lot more detail in the world of kanam and as a sharia person my kanam is weak and that's where sheikh fuad comes in but um unfortunately my sharia is weak too <laughs> but, <laughs> you know <laughs> this happens i guess um Mahia and that that feels to me more abstract because um, it's usually like oftentimes when we use that as well in reference to essence it's referring to Allah and Mahia is not necessarily about Allah uh, if we're trying to get at the essence of a, of a created thing we we'll say Mahia um but when we're talking about the essence of Allah, we use that. And perhaps there's some sort of abstractness that's left in that. right? The mahiyya, maybe, we're, we're kind of trying to understand it and define it. And we can't define it when it comes to Allah. So we need a term that's more abstract and not a term that's related to uh, defining and... We need a term that will refer to the essence without engaging in any sort of epistemic closure, to use a term that Dr. Omer uses sometimes, which is an amazing term, epistemic closure. But 
I hope that helps a little bit. So they'll use that for mahiyah. Considered, because, so now what he's getting at here is min haythu. Min haythu. In Arabic, when they, they say, in hukum min haythu this is this. In hukum min haythu this is this. That when you take a concept and you look at it from different angles, you'll see different things. And so if you look at it from the perspective of the question of what is it, it is called an essence. If we look at it, from the perspective of something that exists outside of the mind, that is objectively, it is called reality, haqiqa. Or if it's being looked at as a specific reality distinguished from others, it is called a huwiya, an individuality or an individual existence. In this way and in the context of the present discussion, we say that what constitutes meaning or the definition of meaning is. So now he's saying, based on all this, here's the definition of meaning that we come to is recognition of the place of anything in a system which occurs when the relation a thing has with others in the system becomes clarified and understood. So he's again talking about the system, but this relationship has to be clarified and understood. And is, he's going to go into more. We say further that the relation describes a certain order. <coughs> is huia like subjectivity? I don't know. I, I don't know that. We uh, in modern Arabic is used for what is it? Uh, identity. Identity, I think, is the word they use for it in modern Arabic. It's like. Uh, so I think that's probably where the, there's an individuality to it. Um, <coughs> I don't know if it could be translated that way or not. Maybe. Again, the problem with me sometimes on these things is I, I don't know the corresponding... I don't have the English <laughs> around some of it. I you know Sometimes I don't have the Arabic either, but... I definitely don't have the English. It's like grammar. Someone asked me grammar. I'm like, I have no idea what that is in grammar. I know what it is in Arabic, but I don't know how you say that in English. Uh, even now, I'm like teaching my. I'm trying to teach English to my son because he's being homeschooled, and I'm like, I don't know what an adverb is. And then I started thinking about it. And I was like, Oh, it adds to the meaning of the verb. This is crazy. Like, <laughs> like learning things in his English book now that I never really realized. Alhamdulillah. In this way, and in the context of the present discussion, we say that what constitutes meaning or, a def or the definition of meaning is recognition of the place of anything in a system which occurs when the relation a thing has with others in the system becomes clarified and understood. We say further that the relation describes a certain order. This to me was a really interesting paragraph because in some kind of like trends of thinking, uh, and our community is not safe from this either, there's like and sometimes these these are responses like there's there's a subjectivity that becomes so rampant that you can't really define anything and sometimes that's a response to like an uh, an objectivity gone wild in a sense of like things were made to be more certain than they actually were and so there's a space there and people are rebelling against it so on and so forth but the point is in the end like if nothing if we can't attribute meaning to anything 
if we if there's no sort of like objective way of thinking about things if there's no sort of objective way of defining things of engaging with things of thinking that something is right versus something else is wrong then everything kind of crumbles and that's what he's saying that's what he kind of gets at in this this portion right here which I'll just read straight which I thought was very interesting you know uh, for example like one of the things that will be very common now is kind of like uh, being against the idea of hierarchy and sometimes you can understand where that response comes from right like rigid hierarchy that's used to oppress or abuse other people then becomes something that people want to uh, reject right so it comes from somewhere um, but then when you lose hierarchy you kind of lose like everything um, you know I've had cases with kids where you're like trying to teach them something and they're like well, this doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't, like, why are we even learning this in the first place? And you're kind of like, that's what I'm here to tell you. <laughs> like, I am the teacher. You are the student. <laughs> that is what I am here to share with you. Inshallah, by the end of it, there will be some sort of understanding on this. Gone, you know? like, And I'm talking about between, like, 10-year-olds and adults. I'm not talking about the medjlis, right? Like, I don't look at it that way. In these kind of gatherings, in these kind of gatherings, it's more of like a community of learners learning together, you know. Um, so I don't mean that here. If everything in a system were in the same place, so if there's no order, right? You have a system, but there's no order in the system. If everything in any system were in the same place, then there could be no recognition. There could be no meaning since there would be no relational criteria to judge, discriminate, distinguish, and clarify. Indeed, there would be no system. For recognition to be possible, there must be specific difference. There must be essential relation. And moreover, these must remain. For if the difference and the relation were not abiding, but were in a state of constant change, specifically and essentially, then recognition of things would be impossible, and meaning would perish. And this brief outline has already revealed the intrinsic connection between meaning and knowledge. You can't, like, it, it, it just all goes away. You know, I felt this way about it, and I felt this way about it, and I felt this way about it. Alhamdulillah. I saw a dream of this, I saw a dream of this, I saw a dream of this, I saw a dream of this. Okay, Alhamdulillah. In the end, we have a sharia. We have a sharia, and we don't reject that there are sometimes realities that kind of are like supra-meaning or they they don't work in the same way as all these other things but yet there has to be something that's foundational that we all are going to agree upon the word has to have a meaning there has to be like we can't just be like you know i i get to everyone gets to make it up for themselves like tell someone hey pass the salt and they give you the pepper and and you're like oh, I asked for the salt, and they're like, well, yeah, I gave you the salt. <laughs> I call that salt. I call that pepper. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, what are you what are you gonna do? <clears throat> but why must they remain? Doesn't language change? Hmm.
but why must they remain doesn't language change So later on he's going to talk about this idea of how the word is not about the word in and of itself, but it's about the relationship with the word and the meaning. It's part of why the meaning thing comes up here. And, uh, and they're connected. And um, so what's actually the issue is the meaning. The meaning has to have some sort of, there has to be some sort of uh, um, uh, what's the words that are used here? Uh, constancy to the meaning. But this is, a, this is an idea. Maybe the word that's used to explain it will change and it will change in a way that everyone understands from it that meaning now. But it also might change in a way that everyone, like we just talked about with Aqan, it might change in a way that now, although it's the same word, it's referring to a different meaning. And so we have to ask the question of what is this connected to? And are we talking about the same thing? Um, so it's not necessarily that the, the language can't change, but the relationship between the language and what it indicates, we have to think about this indication. And if this indication can just be completely haphazard or subject to to never-ending change and so on and so forth then it will be uh, by the way Batul here I don't know if you finished now or not but she's, she's got to be close by now to finishing her PhD in linguistics so you know um <coughs> language change happens within some boundaries the system remains but each element changes in a certain boundary maybe there is a well-defined limit to change yeah so the, like I said but there's some of these ideas he's touching upon them and even you know these are lecture notes in the end so it's not going to be like a full um, fleshed out discourse I wonder if there's something there's probably um, like more detailed works that he's written on it but in the case let's keep Moving with it for now. Um, okay. So this is man. This is all talking about man. Right? The second important element inherent in education is its content. Which is here indicated as something. Which is here indicated as something. A lot of names that we haven't seen in a while, by the way, are with us tonight. And it's really good to have you back. Alhamdulillah. Uh, there's no judgment in that there's no judgment in that people come, people go, people have things that they go some things, some, people are, some things are more interesting to people, some things are less interesting to people, some things are a higher priority some things are a lesser higher priority, no problem all I'm saying is it's good to see you uh, the second important element inherent in education is its content, which is here indicated as something in that first definition something this is done deliberately because even though we all know that it must refer to knowledge we have still to determine what we mean by it 
So we know when we're talking about education that we're talking about the we're talking about knowledge, but he leaves it as something on purpose to force us to have this deeper conversation over what knowledge actually is. Okay. The teaching and learning of skills alone. Where did that? Uh, the teaching and learning of skills alone. However scientific, and no matter if what is taught and learned is encompassed in the general concept knowledge, does not necessarily constitute education. So, he's, he means something very particular by education, and we mean something actually, the concept of education in Islam, we mean something very particular by that. You know, we don't, and, and that's what's going to come, at, by the end, that becomes clear. But, to just like, learn how to paint a fence so there's nothing wrong with painting a fence i just been watching youtube videos on it so that's why i'm talking <laughs> that's why it comes to mind first <laughs> learning how to paint a fence we don't necessarily call it education right but if the person engages for example with the idea of painting a fence and the various meanings that could be associated with that and how those tie into larger concepts and the things that can be learned about how they define, how they develop and discipline themselves through painting the fence. Like if you paint the fence the way that the sensei and karate kid teaches them to paint the fence, now this could be called education. But if we're talking about just, you know, you put one coat on and then you put a second coat on, we wouldn't call that education, right? So this is where um, it's getting into a little bit more of uh, the fine-tuning. The teaching and learning of the human, natural, and applied sciences alone does not constitute education in the sense we are clarifying. Human, natural, applied sciences. There is a something in knowledge which, if it is not inculcated, will not make its teaching and learning and assimilation an education. That there is something in this knowledge that if it's not there, it's not education. So what is, the, so what is this something? Most of the rest of the thing keeps coming back to this something. In fact, the something that we allude to here is itself knowledge. So this something that we need in the seeking of knowledge is a certain knowledge. What is it? Indeed, it is knowledge of the purpose of seeking it. At this point, we are compelled to ask, what then is knowledge? Or what does knowledge consist of? So, this something is the purpose behind all of it. The something is the purpose behind all of it. Which you'll see how kind of like the ideas of, of ilm and amal and niyyah, all of them start like working their way into how he's describing these things. In the beginning I referred to the fact in accordance with Islamic tradition we understand, okay, I refer, in the beginning, I referred to the fact that in accordance with Islamic tradition, we understand definition as of two types. So when you study again in the realm of Islamic studies, they'll always talk about you have an head and you have a rasm. These are two different ways of defining things, which is studied in the uh, field of mantiq and logic. So there's definition by head and definition by rasm. By the former is meant a precise or concise specification of the distinctive characteristic of a thing, and by the latter is meant a description of the nature of a thing. So these are two different ways of defining something. 
One of them is a definition that has to be jami' mani'. They say it has to be uh, precise and distinctive. <coughs> has to include everything that would make it unique, and at the same time, not allow other things to come in. So it has to really only refer to this thing. Sometimes you can't do that with certain things, which he's going to say here. Uh, this distinction reveals that there are things which we can define specifically to, to its precise distinctive characteristic, such as in the case of the definition of man, because he said man is hayawanu natiq. This is a precise, concise, distinctive definition. The human being is a rational animal. No other animals are involved, and it's and this is the capacity of the human being that is truly distinctive and there are things which we cannot so define but can define only by describing its nature knowledge comes under this latter category so we can't define knowledge in the same way that we defined man we have to define it in a way by which we describe its nature we describe its nature um, Something that comes to mind here is how is the definition of the word tasawwuf. Tasawwuf, you know. Islamic spirituality, Sufism, whatever you want to call it. You guys, we've had this conversation enough times that I hope I don't have to shy away from the usage of a word that is part of our tradition within certain boundaries. Um, so tasawwuf has like a million definitions. Everyone gives it a different definition. Why? Because you can't give it a definition according to the first category you can only give it a definition according to the second category wherein you describe its nature and all these people these masters of tasawwuf are describing then something that relates to their own experience in a sense right there so they have all these different ways of describing it um, it is to be honest with Allah and good to the creation it is to turn truly to Allah uh, and nothing else it is to do this it is to do this there's all kinds of different definitions because it falls into this category but he's going to try to do this with knowledge now it's 805 okay let's see there are many definitions describing the nature of knowledge but what is of relevance here is the epistemological definition since it is important to understand what the islamic epistemological context involves and implies so we're talking about concept of education in Islam so we want to learn what so we want to look at knowledge from the perspective of our sources okay perhaps its greatest implication lies in its effect upon our vision of reality and truth and our methodology of research our intellectual scope and practical application and planning for what is called development which all bear upon our understanding of education so how do we look at knowledge Um, and this is something that's often discussed in the very beginning of our works on theology especially as it becomes developed and I think for those of you who probably attended way in the beginning of when we started our in-person classes when Sheikh Fuad taught Sughra Sughra of Imam al-Sanusi I'm sure he went into a lot of this in the beginning 
uh, of you know like what is the hukum okay we we talk about the hukum as aqdi and adi and shar'i what are the different types of judgments we have we have intellect based judgments we have sharia based judgments we have observation based judgments what does that say about our worldview then that means these are the three places we take knowledge from we take knowledge from pure intellect we take knowledge from revelation and we take knowledge from observable observed reality right so these are part of the epistemological approach of uh, our worldview. He probably also spoke about it at length, I would imagine, in the whole class on uh, um, getting our minds right. In any case, uh, Muslims are in concerted agreement that all knowledge comes from God. Like, If you're a Muslim, you kind of have to agree on that. It's very difficult to <laughs> challenge that one. <laughs> if you believe in the Quran, believe in Allah, you believe that knowledge comes from God. Like and the ilm, he is Al Alim Alim. That above anyone or anything that has knowledge, there is one who is Alim, there's one who is more knowledgeable. And we also know that the manner of its arrival and the faculties and senses that receive and interpret it are distinctly not the same. So all knowledge comes from God, whether that be from revelation, whether that be from the world, whether that's from the book of Allah that is seen or the book of Allah that is read. Kitab Allah al-Manzur wa Kitab Allah al-Maqru The book of Allah that is read, the Qur'an, or the book of Allah that is seen, which is the created world. All of that's coming from Allah. However, the uh, the manner of its arrival and the faculties and senses that receive and interpret it are not the same. Okay. Since all knowledge comes from God and is interpreted by the soul through its spiritual and physical faculties, it follows that the most suitable definition would be that knowledge with reference to God as being its origin is the following. So, all knowledge comes from God and is interpreted through the soul, spiritual and physical faculties of the soul. Okay, so again, that qalb, aql issue, soul is being used here as well. Uh, with reference to God and with reference to the soul as the interpreter. So now he's in min haythu, this one, from this perspective, from this perspective. From the perspective of God as being its origin, it is the arrival in the soul of the meaning of a thing or an object of knowledge. The arrival in the soul of the meaning of a thing or an object of knowledge. And that with reference to the soul as being its interpreter, knowledge is the arrival of the soul at the meaning of a thing or an object of knowledge. But it's an arrival of meaning of a thing or an object. We have said earlier, and now he'll <coughs> there's like a little juxtaposition here between the revelation and the observed world, which I think is pretty cool. But we have to stop somewhere. Ideally, we stop here. Uh, <laughs> but that's two pages from now. These are not two light pages <coughs> let's see maybe there'll be a reasonable place to stop in, in here
Yeah. Seven, six minutes. I know we have eight fifteen, but six minutes is not very long for two pages. We've spent an hour so far on probably f four, three, maybe five, because the first two pages aren't really anything. Um. <coughs> anyway, so let's see. Uh, I would understand it here as aqil to Anthony's question. Uh, but I could be wrong. I feel like it's aqil here. We have said earlier that the world of nature, as depicted in the glorious Qur'an, is like a great open book. And every detail therein, encompassing the farthest horizons and our very selves, is like a word in that great book that speaks to, a, to, speaks to man about its author. So the words of the Qur'an speak to man about its author. And the words of the great open book speak to man about its author. Now the word as it really is, is a sign, a symbol, and to know it as it really is, is to know what it stands for, what it symbolizes, what it means. To study the word as word, regarding it as if it had an independent reality of its own, is to miss the real point of studying it. For regarded as such, it is no longer a sign or a symbol, as it is being made to point to itself, which is not what it really is. And this is a big issue with like Islamic philosophy and where Western philosophy went. And um, <coughs> the reductionism that came as a result of that. So the reductionism of it is to say that the word is just a word. It doesn't have a meaning underneath it. The object is just an object. It doesn't have a meaning underneath it. You take the substance out of it. Substance. Take the substance away. So it becomes materialistic. It becomes superficial. It becomes the world rather than existing horizontally and vertically. Because if you have substance, if you have meaning, there's a horizontal world you experience and there's realities to it up and down. There's ontological realities up and down of, of the created world. Like we talked about the mulk and the malakut in, in the hikam class. The idea of the physical world and the spiritual world. And the archetypical world that kind of um, is another layer in the vertical realm. But the reductionism will take away all of that. And now all we have is what we observe. And so if you were to like write a theology text for the modern world, it would say that أقسام الحكم واحد الحكم العادي Like for us, we say أقسام الحكم ثلاثة حكم عادي, حكم عقلي, حكم شرعي For us, we have three types of rulings Again, we have the Sharia ruling comes from Revelation We have the intellect ruling and then we can have the ruling that comes from observation. You might have some debate on the second one in the modern period, but like generally speaking, we have the observable world. And that's why you can give a khutbah and talk about the heart, and afterwards, and this happened to me, someone will come up to you and say, I don't know why you're talking about the heart all the time. You know, I'm a doctor, I study the heart. The heart is just a piece of flesh. And you're like, wow, subhanAllah. Like... 
like our 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 scholars they studied the heart too like that piece of flesh that you studied they studied that one too Ar-Razi, Ar-Razi who was the philosopher who was the mufassir who was the theologian he was also a physician like these people were not um, like were they that dumb <laughs> like really do you think they were that dumb or or yeah, subhanallah the nafs and that's why the nafs is part of this whole uh, process of um, of of making meaning and coming to conclusions and so on and so forth. So in like manner, so in like manner, is the study of nature, of anything, any object of knowledge and creation, pursued in order to attain knowledge of it. If the expression as it really is is taken to mean its alleged independent reality essentially and existentially as if it were something ultimate and subsistent then such study is devoid of real purpose and the purpose of knowledge becomes a deviation from the truth which necessarily puts into question the validity of such knowledge. For as it really is a thing or an object of knowledge is other than what it is and that other is what it means. So just as the study of words as words leads to deviation from the real truth underlying them, in the same way the preoccupation in philosophy with things as things leads to the erroneous, ordinary level of experience belief in the existence of their alleged essences outside the mind, whereas in reality the so-called essences are only mentally posited. A thing, like a word, is in reality ultimately a sign or a symbol that is apparent and is inseparable from another thing not equally apparent sorry that is apparent and is inseparable from another thing not equally apparent in such wise that when the former is perceived the other which cannot be perceived and which is of one predicament as the former is known so what is this saying it's saying when you have the relationship between the thing and the meaning is such that when one is perceived one is apparent and one is perceivable and it is inseparable from the meaning which is not apparent but is perceivable by way of that apparent thing okay which is the this form what we have outlined is in fact a summary exposition of the Quranic concept of ayah as referring to words and things it's beautiful it's beautiful like when he gives us you're like wow subhanallah you know, this is this is what it means for something to be an ayah, for something to be a sign. And this is why the poet said the the line of poetry we always quote and is always quoted in Islamic studies. In everything there is a sign that indicates that he is one. And everything there is a sign that indicates that he is one. There is a meaning beneath that sign that takes us to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I think it's okay actually to read this page quickly and finish. (coughs) Uh, The meaning of a thing... No. That is why we have defined knowledge epistemologically as the arrival in the soul of the meaning of a thing, or the arrival of the soul at the meaning of a thing. The meaning of a thing 
means the right meaning of it. And what is considered to be the right meaning is in this context determined by the Islamic vision of reality and truth as projected by the Quranic conceptual system. So it's not a free-for-all, what is right and what is wrong. It is projected, this is a vision of reality and truth that is projected by the Quran. We can argue over some of the details and the conclusions and so on and so forth, but the, but the Quran is the guide in this regard. And it comes, takes it a step further. We may now recall our earlier reference to the relevance obtained between tafsir and ta'wil as valid methods of approach to knowledge and scientific methodology respecting our study and interpretation of the world of nature and its significance in our conception of knowledge and education. I'll comment after I read the whole part. In the same way that tafsir and ta'wil apply to the glorious Qur'an involving its entire conceptual system, its reflected meanings in the hadith and sunnah and in the things of the empirical world so is the book of the world of nature to be interpreted by scientific methods emulating those of tafsir and ta'wil, treating the things of the empirical world as words, as signs and symbols operating in a network of conceptual relations that all together describe an organic unity reflecting the noble Qur'an itself. This is a, uh, this is a lot. Um, so he's saying, again, we have the book, that is seen we have the book that is read the book that is read we have methodologies for dealing with it and those methodologies that we use to approach the language that is used in the Quran are methodologies that allow for the flexibility that is inherent in language within certain circumstances and context while at the same time acknowledging that this is part of a system Right, the, the the Quran represents a system of ideas and concepts and knowledge in a sense, and so when we understand the words of the Quran, we understand them within that context. And so there are tafsir and ta'wil. Tafsir is usually like to because to get into this would require some usul fiqh. Uh, probably won't get into right now because we're we've already we're already over time. But um, basically, you have a word and it has possible meanings, but one of them is very much more possible and more apparent. And it, it is mufassar in a sense. It is it is a tafsir. It is this is a clear meaning. Uh, there are possible other meanings in theory. But in the context of this conceptual world, this is the one, and it is apparent. The other possibility in ta'wil is that, like, it's not as apparent uh, immediately, but within the context, it becomes a stronger interpretation of what the word means. Uh, we might have to come back to this next time. <laughs> Maybe next time we'll start with uh, Maybe I'll try to pull the passage from the Usul book on tafsir and ta'wil But um, This is not tafsir like in the Quranic sense Like in the tafsir in the tafsir of the Quran sense It's tafsir in the sense of like The linguistic sense um, But basically what it's getting at Is that We have a body of information And we have a piece that's inside that body And that piece inside that body Sometimes uh, or let's now we take that piece. That piece has possible meanings, and inside that inside that conceptual world, 
it will go different ways based on what's there, right? Whereas if it was, if you put it in a different conceptual world, it might mean something else. Um, anyways, what he's saying is that this method that we use to interpret the Quran, which is very interesting, how the Muslims develop this in terms of linguistics and how to look at the Quran and stuff. We have to have similar methodologies that are, um, what is it? That emulate those of tafsir and ta'wil, treating the things of the empirical world as words, as signs and symbols operating in a network of conceptual relations that all together describe an organic unity reflecting the noble Qur'an itself. Because these are both word of Allah. So the Qur'an has its methods and it has its vision. And the world has its methods and it has its vision. And they should reflect each other. Because their source is one and the same. And uh, so this is kind of like what he's hinting at here. In this way also the Noble Qur'an is the final authority that confirms the truth in our rational and empirical investigations. This is also why then the Qur'an, in a sense the Qur'an is more straightforward. It's more direct than the interpreted world. If you say, like the, the interpreted world is kind of like a ta'wil, our conclusions there. And the Qur'an is a tafsir, it's, it's clear. So the Qur'an is the arbiter in all of this. <coughs> what we are saying is that knowledge, as referring to meaning, consists of the recognition of the proper places of things in the order of creation, such that it leads to the recognition of the proper place of God in the order of being and existence. So this is the conclusion of that section. <laughs> some of you are like nodding and shaking your heads. <laughs> I sent some pieces as I was uh, preparing to my wife. And the only emoji that works for it is the one where the brain just explodes. You're like, wow. So what we are saying is that knowledge as referring to meaning consists of the recognition of the proper places of things in the order of creation, such that it leads to the recognition of the proper place of God in the order of being and existence. So we'll probably pick up from this page next time and like review it a little bit, take questions, stuff like that. Um, <coughs> come back to it. But try to read it. Try to review these couple pages we covered on your own. Uh, I think it will help to kind of sit with it and read it a little bit. Um, also, as a spoiler alert, you can see where this is headed in terms of the idea of adab. And in our uh, current situation, adab has been made into like manners, etiquette. Adab has been made into, and it's broader than that, as we'll get into. But it's been made into this thing that like doesn't really matter. But it actually encompasses the essence of a lot of what we're about. And so Edib is about recognition of the proper places of things in the order of creation such that it leads to the recognition of the proper place of God in the order of being in existence. That's part of it. So, you know, there's, there's a lot that's... Um, it's amazing, subhanAllah, when you start, like, going through it because you see how... Like sometimes we take a piece and we feel like that's a little bit strange or I don't really get that. And then when you start really kind of like, you see, it, there is like a, a symphony to it. There is a, a way that like the Muslims, when we approached learning and we approached knowledge and we had the tension that we had between one another in the approach of knowledge and learning and so on and so forth, there is like a congruence that comes from that. And when we... Um, start to leave that foundation 
and approach everything without a recognition and acknowledgement of that foundation, we become very incongruent. And this is, I think, uh, one of the major challenges that we have intellectually. And sometimes people are like, oh, this is just intellectual stuff. Who cares? Whatever. Um, and I'm like that a little bit. Sometimes I get like this kind of like farmer tendency in me where I'm like, forget it. Just like plant some seeds and fish. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Who cares about these things? But there are psychological consequences. If we want to bring it to like a very immediate for people's lives there are psychological consequences to incongruence and when we don't understand these things properly when we don't understand our religion properly when we taking from all these different places when we're coming to conclusions that are not based on sound reasoning when we the like the the muslim way combines between sound reasoning reasoning combines between observation and experience combines between the guiding light of revelation to create an integrated and congruent way of dealing with the world. That has a consequence on the individual, has a consequence on the, the inside of the person, has a consequence on the outside of the person, on the family, on the society, and so on. Allah give us tawfiq. If you guys want to um, 